optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now would have seen an appropriate time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Peloton, which I've been using probably for about a year now. Peloton is a cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You can also do on-demand, which is what I do. We'll come back to that. So you don't have to worry about fitting classes into a busy schedule or making it to a studio or gym with a hectic or unpredictable commute. I, for instance, have a Peloton bike right in my master bedroom at home, and it's one of the first things I do many mornings. I wake up, I meditate for a bit, then I knock out a short 20-minute ride in my undies, hard to do that at the gym, take a shower, and I'm in higher gear for the rest of the day. It's really convenient and has become something that I look forward to. So you have a lot of options. For one, if you like, you can ride live with thousands of other riders across the country on an interactive leaderboard to keep you motivated. There are also up to 14 new classes added every day with more than 8,000 classes on demand. And you can pick based on length, 45 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, music, hip hop, rock and roll, or say low impact versus high intensity or interval. You can pick the class structure and style that works for you. And in my case, I quite like Matt Wilpers, and I tend to do on-demand and listen to a lot of and watch many of the same classes over and over, but I'm kind of promiscuous and also enjoy classes from a lot of the other instructors. They have Peloton, an amazing roster of incredible instructors in New York City with a whole range of styles and personalities, so you can find what you're in the mood for. You also get real-time metrics that you can use to track your performance over time, and that will help I would say catalyze you to beat your personal best. Now that all sounds good, right? Gamification, yada, yada, yada. I didn't think that it would work for me or in any way incentivize me, but they really 100% hit the nail on the head. I was very, very impressed with how motivating it was. And it worked tremendously to keep me pushing, uh, which quite honestly takes a fair amount. I can get quite lazy, particularly with anything that edges on endurance, which is kind of more than five reps of anything for me. So... Check it out. Discover this cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings the studio experience right to your home. Peloton is offering listeners of this podcast a limited-time offer. Go to OnePeloton.com. That's O-N-E, Peloton, P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com, and enter the code TIM, all caps, at checkout and get $100 off of accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. So get a great workout at home anytime you want. Check it out. Go to OnePeloton.com and use the code TIM to get started. This episode is brought to you by WordPress.com. I love WordPress. I have used it for so many years. It's my go-to platform for blogging and creating websites. I use WordPress.com for everything every day. My site, Tim.blog, is built on it. The websites for my books, including Tools of Titans, Tribe of Mentors, it's all on WordPress.com. And the founder, Matt Mullenweg, one of my close friends, has appeared on this show many times. Just search Matt Mullenweg Tequila Ferris for quite an exciting time. Whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, you can make a really big impact right out of the box when you build on WordPress.com. And you'll be in good company. It's used by The New Yorker, Jay-Z, Beyonce, 538, TechCrunch, TED, CNN, and Time, just to name a handful. And one of my friends at Google, who shall remain nameless, has told me that 
WordPress.com offers the, quote, best out-of-the-box SEO imaginable, end quote. And it's one of the many reasons that nearly 30% of the internet is run on WordPress. You do not need experience or to hire someone. That's perhaps the best part. WordPress.com guides you through the entire experience. They have hundreds of designs and templates that you can use. And it's easy to get started. There's no need to worry about security, upgrades, hosting, any of that. They offer 24-7 support. And they're very, very responsive. If you have questions, they get right back to you. And this allows you to create the highest quality with the least amount of headache and friction. So if you're building a website, period, when my friends come to me and ask what I use, what I recommend they use, the answer is WordPress.com. So check it out. If you want to get started today, learn more with a 15% discount off any new plan. Go to WordPress.com forward slash Tim to create your website and find the plan that's right for you. So learn more. Take a look. WordPress.com forward slash Tim for 15% off a brand new website. Check it out. Hello, boys and girls. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. This episode is not going to be a long-form interview where I distill and deconstruct world-class performers. In fact, it is going to be nothing of the sort. It is a Q&A episode. This is Tea Time with Tim, or Timmy, or Timbo, if you prefer, where I solicited phone numbers from all of you and called a handful of you to field any questions that you might have. And I've done these before. They're always a lot of fun for me to do. And among other topics covered in the various phone calls that you will hear in this episode, how to find mentors. How do I think about finding mentors? How have I found mentors in the past? Discussions of meaning, Viktor Frankl, and so on. How to get rid of anxiety or train into confidence. We talk about that as it relates to a handful of things. Uh, cocktails, relationship advice. <laughs> we go all over the place. And I hope you enjoy this as much as I enjoyed recording it. So, Without further ado, here is Tea Time with Tim. Hello. Is this Edwin? Yes, it is. Edwin, this is Tim Ferriss calling. Good afternoon. Hey, Tim. How you doing? Oh, man, I can't, I can't believe this is real. <laughs> it's real. I'm afraid. <laughs> I've, I have, I have, have called the first person. have definitely made my day here. <laughs> well, me too. Okay. Me too. So let's jump right into it. How can I help? Any, uh, and I can't promise I can help, but I'll try to answer whatever questions you might have. I appreciate that. So my question is about uh, mentors. So what guidance do you have for finding a mentor to kind of help maybe gain a better understanding about an industry? Um, and I think more importantly, how would you, or what guidance do you have for asking someone to be a mentor? How do you approach them? How do you kind of break that, uh, or make that initial contact? Mm -hmm. I can, I can actually answer this one. So the, the first rule of thumb is that I would highly advise against ever asking someone directly to be a mentor in using those words because okay. the people you generally will want as a mentor, unless they're retired, are probably quite busy and will hear mentor is unpaid part-time or a full-time job before ever. And therefore, you want to approach it somewhat indirectly. And there are a few different ways to do that. There's also a resource I can recommend, which is a book uh, okay. called The Third Door, which I think does a very good job of 
exploring real life case studies of communication that works and communication that doesn't work when you're reaching out to people who are where you'd like to be or who could be possible mentors even remotely by what they write and so on. So I would suggest checking out that book. I, you know, I'm actually, I have it in my hand. I heard um, your interview with uh, Alex Benayan on your podcast. Mm-hmm. And man, I have to say, I am a fan. It's gotten me through some hard times. And that's where I initially came across this book. And I'm, I'm right around that chapter. Um, I maybe like uh, 60, 70 pages in and I just read the part where it kind of goes into the intro, how we kind of talk to you. And so I, I think that's where that question came from. And I'm just, Oh, perfect. Great. I, I just, yeah. So I'm just trying to break into this and I'm trying to kind of not repeat those uh, mistakes that he highlights in, in the book, you know? <laughs> yeah. So let me, let me, t- let me take a stab at, saving you from some pitfalls. The the okay. way that I first connected with people who later became mentors, in a sense, when I landed in Silicon Valley in 2000 was through volunteering. So I highly recommend mm. volunteering. And the reason for that is that many organizations, including entrepreneurial or entrepreneurship-focused organizations, that could be the EO, the Entrepreneur's organization. It could be Young President's organization, YPO. It could be any number of others. There are many of them. In Silicon Valley, I volunteered at Thai, which is the Indus entrepreneur, even though I'm clearly not Indian, uh, and volunteered Mm -hmm. at uh, SVASE, which at the time was the Silicon Valley uh, Association of Startup Entrepreneurs. And they given their location and given their focus, were able to get media to attend to cover speakers, meaning to feature speakers in articles and so on for Forbes or Fortune, whatever it might be. And that meant if I were to volunteer, even if I were simply taking tickets or refilling water glasses, both of which I did, I would have an opportunity if I overperformed, which is easy, in fact, in most volunteer capacities, because the people who show up very often have the attitude, I'm not getting paid for this, so I will do the bare minimum that they ask of me. So if you are proactive Uh, in asking for additional responsibility, or is there anything else I can help with? I finished X. Can I help with anything else? If you are proactive and really responsible and get things done on time, you'll very often find that they will be more than happy to give you additional responsibility. And that is how I ended up ultimately sitting in on planning meetings and volunteering to uh, act as a speaker liaison for an event, which allowed me to reach out to people I wanted to get to know, like Jack Canfield, who is the co-creator, is the co-creator of Chicken Soup for the Soul, which has sold hundreds of millions of copies, the person who commercialized creatine first, creatine monohydrate, that is, mm. uh, the creator of the pet rock. I had a, I had a very motley crew wow. of folks I wanted to assemble, and there had to be something in it for them. And what was in it for them was speaking in front of an audience of entrepreneurs with media in attendance to cover them. So I was not asking them for any favors. In fact, I was asking them uh, if they'd be willing to sort of receive media coverage, in effect, and also interact with other people at their level. And it was, it was uh, during that event, I, I wanted to do one thing, and it was not ask them if they could be a mentor. It was to demonstrate to them that I was very, very good at doing my job. 
So I wanted it to be the smoothest speaking experience they've ever had. I wanted it to be an event to remember. I wanted to ensure that they had the media contacts they wanted to have, interactions that is. And following that event, I later, much later, maybe a month or two later, reached out after thanking the speakers, each speaker separately and as a group, to uh, say, ping, I think it was Jack Canfield at the time, and I used an approach that was similar to what I outlined in the four-hour work week when reaching out to experts who are above your pay grade. And in effect said, you know, Jack, I really enjoyed our interactions. I hope we get to meet again. And if it's okay with you, I'd, I'd love to very rarely, but if the occasion calls for it, send you a question that overlaps with your deep experience uh, if I'm totally stuck after trying to figure something out. And it, it was uh, along those lines. And Jack then, uh, I kept in touch with, now it's important for me to qualify what that means. Keep in touch with does not mean pester. It does not, se- it does not mean send him quarterly updates. It does not mean okay. clog his inbox. It means that maybe once every six to 12 months, I would send him a legitimate question and I would indicate what I'd already tried to do to answer the question. This is really important. So if you reach out to oh. a potential mentor or someone who has more life experience and you say, hi, Tim, I was just wondering, I'm studying this in school, what should I do? That's a terrible question because it doesn't reflect if you've actually tried to figure it out on your own or if you're using me for your personal Google. It also does not uh, lend itself to a specific answer. So you have to ask yourself, is this a question that this person could answer in four lines or less? And if you're, if you look at the question and realize it's going to take them a half hour to answer it because you're asking them for the meaning of life and to explain their trajectory and how they grew their career, then it's a bad question because you have more time than they do. And you should be aware of that from the outset. So it would generally be a question like, you know, the, the question I'd love to ask you is X, here are the things I've already tried. My tentative plan is this. If you have any other thoughts, I would really appreciate them. And if you're too busy to respond, I totally understand. So give them an out wow. so that they feel comfortable not responding and completely unpressured. This is very important and, and perhaps counterintuitively that'll get you more answers because what many younger go-getters will do is they'll send an email and they'll finish it with looking forward to your reply or I have Tuesday at 2 p.m. and Thursday at 1 p.m. Central Open. Which one works for you? <laughs> and it's so presumptive yeah, <laughs> and aggressive yes, yes. that the no matter what the content of that email, the person receiving it will be likely to think to themselves, well, shit, if I... If I reward this person with a response to this email, I am encouraging them to send me 20 more of these emails. And I don't want to do that, so I'm not going to respond. So that's, that's one, uh, one approach. And I would also encourage you to look for a South by Southwest talk that I gave, which, uh, funny enough, coincides with South by Southwest starting right now, today and tomorrow, in a, uh, Austin, Texas, in early March. But the talk is titled How to Build a World Class Network in Record Time, or something equally 
hyperbolic. In any case, it, it is, though, an accurate reflection of the talk. And you may be able to find it on the podcast. So there's a chance that I took the audio and put it on the, on the podcast. But if you, if you Google how to build a world-class network in record time and Tim Ferriss, something will pop up, whether it is a video recording of the presentation at South By or it is audio on the podcast itself, which I do think uh, I had repurposed the audio for. So those are my thoughts. If you're reading The Third Door, I think that will also complement a lot of what we're talking about. So I hope that helps. Does that fill in some gaps, hopefully, or give you some direction? uh, Yes, definitely. And I mean, I I must say it's one thing to read it in a book or to hear it on your podcast, but kind of to hear it straight from you, it uh, just adds a little more weight to it. And it uh, definitely just makes it sound doable. So I I really appreciate it. And I I think you for your time and i just uh you know your your show's definitely um has been a game changer for me so thank you for that and keep doing what you're doing and i really appreciate it so thank you so much thanks so much my pleasure of course and i should point out one other thing which is when i mentioned yeah. jack canfield for instance i said it once every uh-huh. six to twelve months that's a long time uh-huh. so that that yeah. is an indicator that i'm playing the long game Right. The question you shouldn't be asking, and I don't think you are, but the question you shouldn't be asking is, how can I find a mentor for the next 12 months? If you're looking for something like that, it's going to end up being somewhat transactional, and you're going to have to force something within a context of a group like the Entrepreneurs Organization, where people are going there explicitly for that purpose, to learn from one another, mm-hmm. to teach, to, and so on. Otherwise... Mm-hmm. I would encourage you to reframe the question in your head. So the question isn't, how do I get a mentor? The question is, how can I encourage people I aspire to be like, who are 10, 20, 30 years ahead of me, to respect me and want me to succeed? That's a better question. How do I get people, say, 5, 10, 20 years ahead of me, whose paths I might want to emulate, how do I get those people to respect me and want me to succeed? And if you do that, that's a precursor to them helping you in ways that resemble those of a mentor. But the word mentor is uh, probably a word that will never come up, even though in practice, that's what they will be doing for you. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And and I think that's, uh, it's one of those uh, Tim Ferriss hidden gems. And I think that's the exact, uh, answer I was hoping for. That's the exact type of answer I was hoping for. And it's, uh, yeah, I think you, you answered it uh, perfectly. All right. And so just a last, last question here. So what, what do you think about the, the um, handwritten follow-up notes? Sometimes they say, you know, emails are better. Sometimes they say, you know, handwritten, uh, you know, thank you notes, or even just, you know, asking these questions via, you know, a handwritten letter or what have you. Do you have any thoughts on if one is better than the other? I don't think a handwritten letter is necessary. And uh, a, a lot of people, myself included, do not want to give out their mailing addresses, even if it's a P.O. box. Uh, so I would say it's it's unnecessary. Giving someone a handwritten note at an event is a different story, and I do recommend that. Uh, but you can listen to the uh, talk that I gave on that topic at South by Southwest and on the podcast, which I mentioned earlier, and that will get into details on that. All right, my man. Uh, Thank you. I will leave you to it. Good luck and uh, nice chatting with you. Thank you. You too. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. 
Steve, this is Tim Ferriss calling. Good afternoon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am doing fantastic. It's a beautiful day. And I am excited to attempt to answer any question you might have. So I am happy to let you take it from here. Well, this is amazing. And uh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, I actually had two different questions. I didn't know if you wanted more of a kind of meaning of life question or if you prefer like a like a job kind of question. I would say pick if if you could only get one of them answered, pick that one because that may be the case because I want to make sure that I am able to call uh, more than a few people. So I would say pick pick the one you would most like to have answered if you had to choose one and then if it goes quickly then we can consider a second one but we'll we'll try one. Okay, great. Um well, so recently I've I've read uh Man's Search for Meaning and that it was just a great book and it really made a, a big impact on me and it made me think a lot about purpose and finding meaning in life. And I guess my question for you is you've you've reached such a high level of success, being able to affect so many people. And so I guess my question for you is once you've reached that level, how do you continue to find purpose in your life? Um, has it evolved? Um, you know, what, what would you say your purpose is right now? This is a good question. Big question as well. Uh, I, I would say that uh, I'll try to tackle that in a somewhat meandering fashion. Uh, so the, the first thing I would say is my approach to book writing, my approach to the podcast, my approach to the television shows I've been involved with has had a common thread that is very, very simple. People might even consider it simplistic. And that is, if I have a pain or a problem, or if I have a desire or a goal, I assume it is very likely that many other people have the same pains or problems or desires or goals. So most of what I do is scratching my own itch with the expectation that if I can figure out how to, how to navigate any of those things well and take good notes and test a lot so that I can try the hundred things to filter down to the one or two that truly have a disproportionate, disproportionately good outcome that that is a straightforward way of, of adding value to the world and not just consuming oxygen and eating resources. So that's, that is my general process, which is a way of backing into your question about you know, what, what is giving me meaning right now. What is giving me meaning right now is looking at some of the uh, traumatic experiences I had as a child, looking at the repercussions of that, and the behaviors or thought patterns that are impossible to explain that I still have in some cases uh, without looking in the rearview mirror and somehow metabolizing or integrating what happened to me that never had a sense of closure. And uh, that then ties into a lot of the research I'm supporting related to treatment-resistant depression, uh, related to long-term demoralization in, say, uh, AIDS survivors, 
at uh, UCSF. And uh, a lot of what I'm hoping to do with universities and other groups, including uh, Johns Hopkins at the top of the list. Uh, and uh, for me then, it's, it's, it's assuming that right now for me, that everyone is fighting battles we know nothing about. Like literally everyone. There is some degree of suffering, whether it's minor or major, chronic or acute that everyone walking around you see. I mean, I'm looking out a, a, a high rise right now down at the ground. So I see these hundreds of ants, which will soon be thousands and tens of thousands with South by Southwest and assuming that every one of those people has some type of suffering past or present tense that is affecting how they make decisions, how they interact, how they view themselves. And if I can provide any tools whatsoever to decrease that suffering and to allow them to help other people who are suffering, then I view that as time very, very well spent. So that's how I'm thinking about it right now. Uh, but I'm not wedded to that. And I think it can fluctuate. Um, I do think the filling the void chapter in the four hour work week, which is probably the most neglected yet most important chapter in some respects in the entire book towards the tail end uh, ties into a lot of the observations that you would uh, read in Viktor Frankl's book and books for that matter. And so there are certainly complementary chapters and books that you could digest. But when in doubt, uh, I would say, instead of trying to save the world, look at how you can save yourself or help yourself in some fashion. And by doing something that seems very selfish on the surface, you're actually being very practical because you are scratching your own itch in such a fashion that you're not purely speculating. You're dealing with the real world, even if it is limited to you, which I can pretty much guarantee you if it's any type of suffering, if it's any type of desire, there's a very, very high likelihood probably 100%, but let's just call it very high likelihood, that there are thousands at a minimum and probably millions of people in the world with some close cousin uh, of that, if not the exact same thing uh, in their daily experience. So that's, that's how I currently am, am thinking about it. Uh, but uh, I should also say that there's no, there's no one right answer here. Right? So the, your meaning could be playing music and brightening people's days for 60 minutes or 30 minutes when you get on stage to play your set because you've carefully crafted this art to change the emotional state of people who are sitting within 50 feet of you. That And, and if that gave you meaning, uh, and certainly I think that's... Uh, I think that is meaningful. I think that's very meaningful. Uh, even though other people who uh, might sit on the sidelines and judge, which is usually the people who judge, by the way, it's not the people in the arena who are actually scraping their knees and getting things done, but the peanut gallery on the internet and on the side, criticizing you, saying that you should be spending your time a different way. There is no should. This is the, we're not dealing with you know the natural laws or physical, uh, you know, hard scientific laws that are 
sort of uh, in, <laughs> I mean, we can get into a conversation of objectivity, but let's just call them objective truths uh, for, for the sake of this thought exercise. We're dealing with your perception of what matters. And your perception of what matters, I think, uh, though you should listen to other people, and I encourage you to, to talk to other people about how they think about it, your perception of what matters is your perception of what matters. And you can own that, and you can consider it valid. Uh, I, I would say that it's helpful as you're walking around in the world as a perceiving machine to perhaps read or listen to certain books like Awareness by Anthony DeMello would be uh, a, a, a one recommendation that I would have. Uh, but I'll stop talking in a second because this, this is a long answer, but I can't give the meaning of life, but I can tell you where I think my most leveraged point of focus is for creating meaning as I feel it today. And it's not a purely cognitive exercise, I should say. It's not that I think about it and sit down with a spreadsheet, although with some of the investments and donations I make in science, I do think about uh, the downstream effects of certain landmark studies, for instance. So I, I do use an analytical side to it, but the, the analytical is more in my case these days for the execution. So I really try to feel with a, what, what do I get a whole body yes to that makes me and other people feel better or that uh, in some fashion solves a problem or helps me or others to get what they're hoping to have or gives people hope then enables them in some fashion. You know, what, what is the feeling that I want, right? So instead of saying, how do I find meaning? Say, like, what is the feeling I hope to have when I find meaning? Or sort of an antecedent or uh, if, if you can kind of diagnose what you need by looking at the, the symptoms, the side effects, which would be how you would feel. Like if you were doing something really meaningful, what would that give you that you don't currently have? And then try to map that as you're talking about different ideas, different topics, different ways you could spend your time. Like, when does that feeling come up? And then if you use that as, as one uh, criterion for deciding where you might want to focus to create meaning, uh, then you can use the analytical to build a plan for executing on everything we just described. But that's long uh, answer to a short question. Hopefully that wasn't completely uh, word salad. Uh, did any of that make any sense whatsoever? That was incredible. And, and thank you so much. I, it, that's extremely helpful in, in my situation. And um, I just really appreciate you, uh, you know, taking the time to answer my question. And um, it's super helpful. Thank you, Tim. And, and I just feel like I need to say thank you for everything that you that you do and that you've done. Um, I know you hear this all the time, but you know, I've been following your work for a very, very long time. And, uh, you know, it's, you've made so many, uh, impacts on my own life and I know you've made impacts on so many people. So I just want to say thank you for, for being you. And, and I really, really appreciate you. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I, I appreciate you as well. Honestly, it's like, I wouldn't be here able to do this if I didn't have, listeners and readers who've been 
so incredibly supportive of this accidental career I've ended up having. <laughs> so it's a real uh, blessing to be able to do this in any way. And uh, it, it means a lot that you would even fill out the form to allow me to call. So it's, it's of course, my pleasure. And, and I should emphasize, too, I'm still figuring this out. I'm still f- making it up as I go along and testing. And at the end of the day, for me, whether it's looking for meaning or trying to create meaning, which I think are two different approaches that can be very complementary, trying to figure out early stage investing or any number of dozens of other things I might get my hands into, uh, rather than trying to debate in your own head or with other people what the best approach might be, what the best next step might be out of, say, three or four or even more things, I just try to test them. So I look for low-cost tests with limited downside that I can throw out into the world to see what happens, to see what sticks and what doesn't. So that's all I'm doing. And I'm certainly learning from lots and lots of people around me, including people like yourself. Uh, so I'll let you, I'll let you get back to your day, but, uh, thanks very much for, uh, taking the time yourself. Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Take it easy. Bye. Hello, Heather speaking. Hello, Heather speaking. This is Tim Ferriss speaking. Good day. No, it's not. It is. I'm afraid so. I listen. (laughs) Well, hello. Why hello? How's 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 the other the the weather? I said Heather. How's the Heather? I suppose we could (laughs) speak that way as well. How's the Heather and how is the weather surrounding Heather at the moment? That's how kids get to learn my name and remember it because it rhymes. Indeed. Uh, the weather is very cold in Toronto. I was going to say, it looked like you were calling, or I should say I was calling a Toronto number. Fine city it is. Some it fantastic is. friends and fantastic startups also in that lovely city of yours that does get a little chilly. What might I be able to attempt to answer for you, Heather? Um, so I'm a late bloomer, and I am. I have started taking karate. I've been invited to take my I'm so nervous. Black belt test in uh, the spring. Congratulations. And uh, thank you. But I'm so nervous, just like I am now. <laughs> and I'm a bit of a choker. Uh, Take your I time. There's, there's no rush. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just sitting here <laughs> with my don't... tea and a computer. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I'm, I know that you do all kinds of these. And I'm just wondering what your method is for staying focused and calm. So the the short answer is that I like to simulate the test environment as much as possible beforehand. Uh, That that can include many different factors. So for instance, if I'm going to be speaking on stage somewhere, uh, whether that's TED or a different venue, I will go, uh, I will always make sure that I have a chance, ideally the day before, maybe the day of, to go spend time on the stage and to test all the technical equipment and to know exactly where I'm going to have breakfast the next day if it's a large conference so that I don't have to worry about there being any hiccup in the logistics. Right. So I would map out the entire day that you anticipate or versions of the day that you anticipate on your test day 
and look at all of the things that could stress you out, potentially. Look at all the things the night before that could stress you out or cause issues. And then uh, do two things. Number one is try to set up a system so that you run into the fewest number of those things as possible. And then secondly, practice the screw-ups beforehand so, so that if they do happen, you aren't going to be as reactive and thrown off, if that makes sense, right? So so that uh, could include going to, and using visualization is fine for a lot of this, but let's just say that there's a possibility, I'm making up this example, right? But if there's a possibility that at a specific speaking location, I don't do a lot of speaking anymore, but let's just say hypothetically, I'm going to go want to get a coffee, and I think the coffee, uh, the coffee shop might be completely overrun with people, and I don't like crowds. Even though I can speak in front of crowds, I don't actually like being in crowds. Uh, so two things. W- number one, I'm going to come up with contingency plans, right? So maybe I buy my own coffee machine at Target that I can replace <laughs> or return two days later. Maybe I get some instant coffee from Starbucks. Maybe I decide to use room service um, and have backup plants so that I don't have to do that. And then I could also uh, go in a number of times when it's really, really busy and uh, visualize that it is the day of my speaking gig or the black belt test and practice calming yourself down. I think part of uh, part of the mistakes, or one of the mistakes, excuse me, that that folks make is they practice skills like meditation and mindfulness in a vacuum. If that right. ma- if that makes sense, so not they, under stress. That's exactly right. So they will meditate in the morning when it's completely quiet before anyone's gotten up on their special cushion in their special room and then they go to the DMV and they completely lose their shit because <laughs> they haven't right. practiced the skill in the environment that most demands it or the type of environments. Uh, so for instance, uh, f- a few years ago, I went on my first, uh, well, it was not my first caribou hunt. In this case, it was an elk hunt. And I don't, I don't hunt very much, consume everything that I hunt, but I, I do hunt occasionally. And I went on an elk hunt, did not end up harvesting any elk. Uh, but in preparation for that, because it was going to be a bow hunt, I was practicing uh, in upstate New York uh, with archery. And I hired a coach. I was doing all sorts of technical training, which you've done already for your black belt test, right? You've done the yeah. technical practice. Yeah. I was doing technical practice. Uh, but then I realized a few things when I travel in this case to Colorado, I'm going to be going from sea level to something like uh, between seven and 11,000 feet of elevation. So my heart is automatically going to be beating a lot faster just to make, uh, to oxygenate my blood properly or oxygenate my tissues, I suppose, uh, more effectively. Second, I am almost certainly going to be extremely nervous. I, at that point, had never even seen uh, a bull elk. And they're gigantic. They're like horse with these enormous antlers, and they make these really incredible shrieking sounds. Sounds like a woman like being thrown off a cliff or something. They make these incredible sounds. So I assumed if I run into an elk, which is the objective, and I have a, a, 
a whatever the draw is on the bow pulled back and my muscles are super tense and I've been wondering if I'll screw it up all day long, uh, I'm probably going to feel like I've had, you know, three double espressos. Okay. If, if that's the case, I should practice, uh, under those physiological conditions. So what I did is I, I did a number of things is I would do say 20 or 30 burpees or 40 or 50 kettlebell swings. And then I would pick up the bow and take one shot. And I did this when I was practicing in New York, right? Because I wanted to get my heart rate, uh, well over say like 180. So I do whatever necessary to get very physiologically, uh, what I would consider off baseline and then to attempt the skill. Right. And you, you want to be safe with this, right. of, of course, but I would mimic yeah. that. And I also did that when I was preparing for my Ted talk, I would, uh, I would down a bunch of double espressos and then go in to give the presentation because I'm giving a presentation as a rehearsal in front of a familiar crowd. Ultimately when I'm blinded by the house lights or the stage lights rather, and unable to see people in the crowd, my body is going to react very differently. So I want to mimic that. Uh, how far out is your black belt test right now? They haven't set the date, but I believe uh, first evaluations in May. Okay. So you have, you have something like two months. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, do you do, uh, do you do any type of performance in front of crowds? Do you, have you done any, public speaking or sports competitions, things of that nature in the past? Many moons ago, I, I used to perform in front of people, but mm-hmm. um, it's, it's been a few decades. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just find that I'm overwhelmed at the idea. Yep. What is, what, is, uh, what is the format of the black belt test? Is it going to be the class watching you? Is it going to be in a familiar location, a new location? What does it look like? I, from what I understand, there are two main testing locations, and there's sort of more of a formality uh, gathering, but none of them are in, in locations that I typically that I would get to practice at on the norm. Like they're not at the dojo. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think they're far out and big. Okay. <laughs> there are quite a number. What are what are yeah. what are your concerns? What are you worried could happen? Uh, I'm worried that I will blank. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was a time where I was in a another competition, and when it when it came game day, I just got so nervous I couldn't find my feet. <laughs> with nothing to do with martial arts, but still, and so I have that fear that it's going to happen again and. Uh, it's ridiculous. But it, no, it's not ridiculous. I don't think it's ridiculous at all. Uh, I, I, I really don't think it's ridiculous. It's, it's a response that your body and psyche are having to a past experience to protect you, right? So you're <laughs> so subconsciously, you're trying to protect yourself to prevent what happened from happening again. That makes perfect sense. So the, the way you overcome that is, in my experience, not by expecting that on game day, you're going to be able to summon self-talk that is going to be a hundred times more effective than any of your self-talk in the past. It's by rehearsing what you fear. So you have two months, which is great news. So I would think about other things that make you nervous that would make you specifically nervous about blanking. 
right? Whether that's getting up on stage and talking in front of people. If that's an example, then find a local Toastmasters, for instance, and get up right. on stage and start doing that because you will, you will then be, begin to develop more confidence in your ability to either not blank or to blank and recover from blanking. Does that make sense? So I, w- I would look for other circumstances that would provoke the same fear and practice those as much as possible. I would also find out ahead of time what the locations are and I would spend time at those locations because the fewer new variables you can have on the day of testing, the better off you'll be. Uh, I would never, for instance, when I was competing a thousand years ago, I would never ever set foot into a competitive arena or on a mat or anything like that for the first time when I was about to compete or do some type of testing. I would always do recon ahead of time and I would know, I would know where the bathrooms are. I would know uh, where the main entrance is. I would know, I would have an idea of what the process is going to be. For instance, when I did my black belt test at the Kodokan in Tokyo, in Japan, when I lived there from 15 to 16, uh, wow. for so when I was in Japan, I was part of the judo club, which is the judo team. I mean, judo, really, but uh, the, doesn't translate particularly well into English, but judo team. And that's where we did our black belt test. So I, I did recon even then to know exactly what the process would look like, what the format would look like and uh, to actually attend a few practices in that facility just so that I would have uh, a familiarity with, say, the temperature of the mats, right? Which, is, which it can vary tremendously in judo from location to location. I'm sure for other things as well, but the kind of plastic, rubbery tatami mats that they use in judo could be freezing cold uh, in one place and really, really warm in another, which affects the hardness or the the relative hardness or softness, right? So all of these things I would want to be exposed to before it matters, before it counts. Right. Uh, There's also a very good uh, book I can recommend that uh, has helped me a lot. I've read it over and over again. It has a rather cheesy title, but the content is exceptional and uh, very, very practical. It's by Dale Carnegie, and it's called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And it may seem like a dramatic recommendation for this particular example that you've brought up, but okay. the fear of blanking uh, and how that can be self-reinforcing, if that makes sense, right? Like the fear of blanking yeah. makes it more likely that you are going to blank. Right. Um, so that is a psychological, uh, it's, it's a question of, of psychology and mindset, uh, as well as skill set. And th- this is, I think the neglected component that I've been alluding to since I started rambling in response to this is that, uh, if someone asks me, and I do get asked this pretty frequently, like, how do I build my confidence? Like, what should my self-talk look like? How can I develop confidence. And my answer is you don't develop it in a vacuum. You develop confidence by systematically exposing yourself to discomfort and things that you think are just outside of your capabilities or just outside of your comfort zone. And as you do that, you can, you condition yourself 
to better tolerate stress and to take what you previously would have considered risks, even though now you recognize them as very achievable, trainable objectives. And that's how you build confidence. You build confidence by doing these things because at the end of the day, like your inner critic, your inner voice is going to know the truth, right? You can do all, you can listen to all of the motivational audio that you want, but if you, if you haven't put in the work and you haven't set foot in this arena, if you haven't subjected yourself to similar situations that would provoke this fear of blanking, you are going to know on, on a deep level. On the flip side, this is the good news, if you've done those things, you show up and you know you've done everything you could have done and the self-talk is, I've done all of the preparation. Like I have prepared more methodically than anyone else who has taken this test. And therefore, all I need to do now is simply let come out what I've been technically practicing for X number of months, X number of years, right? Like I have, I have turned over every stone I could to prepare for this. And that is what makes it far less likely that you're going to blank or I should say, end gives you the confidence that if you blank, which has happened to me dozens of times on stage in front of big audiences while I'm speaking, like literally like just poof, gone, do not know what the hell comes next. <laughs> and once you've learned kind of how to tap dance with that, uh, you, you develop confidence, not just your, in your ability to execute on a plan, but your ability to improvise. And, uh, those would be, those would be some, some of my thoughts, but really it's remove as many unknowns as possible. If you have, what if this, what if that go practice right. that, go practice that, what if in some capacity. And, you know, maybe that's asking to go to a different karate school with people you don't know to oh. participate in a class or to do a demo. Like, would you mind? And you can explain to the teacher, like I'm not coming in here with a lot of swagger. I'm trying to prepare for my black belt test. I'm really nervous. I'm going to blank. I'm working with my teacher. But one thing that was recommended to me is getting into unfamiliar environments because that's what the testing environment is going to be to actually perform so that I have less fear of blanking when it matters. And I'm sure that you could find, you could even ask your instructor if there's another instructor he or she can recommend who would be open to hosting you in a way, right? So there, there are ways to practice this stuff. That's a great idea. Yeah, so, so that's, uh, which, which was taught to me, right? This is all stuff that I picked up from other people who are really, really seasoned competitors in, the, in, the, in, in most instances. Uh, I am not that. Yeah, yeah. So this is this. These are just bits and pieces that I've picked up over time, for uh, inoculating yourself against sort of nebulous fear. Uh, and there's there's another exercise that I would very very strongly recommend you go through because you may realize like even if I blank and this doesn't work, it doesn't happen. I can retest three months later or six months later, right? Right. And, and there's a thought exercise that you can go through, which involves some writing. So I guess it's more than just a thought exercise called fear setting, which if, uh, if, you right. haven't, if, if you haven't seen it, or even if you have, it may be an opportune time to revisit. This is something I do very regularly, probably at least once a quarter, uh, maybe even once a month, 
Uh, and you can find that at tim.blog forward slash Ted, since I also discussed the process in, in my last time. I have uh, listened to all of your podcasts. <laughs> so uh, to a point where I think it's comfortable to other people. <laughs> so I'm, I'm familiar with it. I might have heard yeah. you mention it once or twice. Yeah, so I, I, would, I would go and you know, print out that blog post and just run through the exercise. Even if it seems uh, in some way academic, I, I right. think that it will also alleviate a lot of unnecessary pressure or fear that you're probably imposing on yourself uh, that may not be extremely well-defined. And that book, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, will also chip away at that with different tools and recommendations. And that was Dale Carnegie. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, one small question. I hear quite rigorous, more so than our regular training, and I don't know if I should, leading up to it, have more rest time or more, like, go at it and the like, giver leading up to it to, to practice. What do you, what do you recommend? I just, I'm not, athletics is not my, my background. It's not my talent necessarily. And so um, I'm looking to get through it and, and try to do so as gracefully as I can. Uh, but I hear that it's quite a long day and by design it's uh, exhausting. <laughs> yeah, I would, uh, I would rest quite a bit in the week before the actual test, uh, particularly in the few days beforehand. Uh, but, but since you have two months, I would strive to make your training harder than the test day. Right. By design. Right. And if you've gone through things that are harder than the actual fight, so to speak, you will come in with a very, very well-earned high level of confidence that you are physically capable because you've already stress tested those circumstances. So I would, I would absolutely, you know, within safe boundaries, of course, uh, make your training harder than your competition slash certification for sure. 100%. And, uh, I think it was Archilochus. One of my favorite quotes is, we do not rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Right. So hope, and uh, since I'm uh, high on tea right now and, and want to use quotes, yeah. I'll also say, you know, there's, there's a longer quote by James Cameron, the, the director, uh, Terminator, Avatar, etc., cetera, uh, Titanic, which begins with hope is not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. Right. Hope is not a strategy. So, uh, condition yourself uh, by making your training at least at a few points beforehand physically more demanding than the test day and figure out ways to do that and it doesn't necessarily have to be karate but it should be something that is physically more demanding than the test day i would simulate it as closely as humanly possible okay thank you very much you're welcome. I'm going to uh, consider getting a trainer. <laughs> yeah, you should. So best, uh, yeah. best, best of luck with your with your black belt test. Very Thank exciting. Thank you very much. Yeah, congratulations. You made my day. <laughs> Have a good one. You too. Bye bye. Justin. Justin, how is it in California, or at least on a California telephone? This is Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss, you know I was expecting your call. Well, here I am. Uh, not, not, not to. 
not to leave you hanging. I appreciate that. Uh, everything's great. I'm down here in uh, Los Angeles. How is how's Austin, Texas, presumably treating you? It's fantastic. It decided to brighten up and offer the sun just as people are arriving for South by Southwest, which it always does to seduce everyone. But the weather is actually generally very nice, but it's, it's been cold for the last week or so. Uh, how can I be of assistance? What question might I be able to answer or attempt to answer? Well, you know, this is more of a, a personal question. And I read the the blurb and I said, what's an interesting question that I could ask Tim Ferriss? Because he is generally in charge of the interesting questions. And I thought, if Tim, Tim, if you had to identify as a type of cocktail, what would that cocktail be and why would you identify as it? Huh. If I had to be a cocktail, you know, the first thing that came to mind was an old fashioned, uh, just because I, I feel like, for me, there should be certain constants in life. You should have, for instance, consistency with values and how you make decisions with your values as, as an operating system, effectively, for the go, no-go decisions, do, not do, spend time with this person versus avoid this person type of decisions. Uh, on the other hand, past the basic ingredients with, say, an old-fashioned, you then have, as a, as a bartender, quite a bit of room to improvise and add your own flair. Uh, and it can vary tremendously from, from place to place. Uh, so I think that then offers the flexibility to reinvent yourself with respect to uh, projects with respect to career, with respect to how you manifest those values in priorities that guide you uh, day to day on a more operational uh, on a more operational level. So that is the first thing that comes to mind when you ask about cocktail. There's like some some consistency and. A, a bedrock foundation that you can rely on and expect, and then you have the room to improvise and be creative and reinvent as needed with all sorts of other types of adornments and highlights, subtle or over the top uh, as you see fit. That was a fantastic answer that exceeded all my expectations. <laughs> well, I'm glad. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, that was a pretty quick one. Is there, is there, uh, do you have any other questions or would you like to leave it at the cocktail? Um, sure. You know, since, uh, since I have you, I don't know when the next time I'll be able to get you on a phone call is. Um, I'm 27 years old. I'm a gentleman. I consider myself, uh, uh, I'm constantly trying to learn and, you know, I'm a huge fan of the podcast and I can't express my gratitude enough for everything that you do for myself and, and everybody else. Um, I'm somebody that generally struggles with finding, you know, my purpose and I don't want to go square peg round hole as far as trying to force myself down a walk of life that, you know, maybe isn't exactly fit for me. Was there a time that you felt that you were particularly stagnant and maybe weren't fitting in where you thought you should have? And was there something that maybe helped you get over that? I've had that feeling at many points in my life. So the, the first thing I would say is that 
it is a normal experience. And in fact, at your exact age, I was having that feeling. Uh, 27, I would have been in the process of traveling, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Uh, so I would have been bouncing from place to place, uh, living on the cheap, whether it was Ireland or Berlin or any number of other places, wondering what the hell am I going to do with my life? So I was at the exact same point in some respects uh, that you are, it sounds like, from what you're describing. So the first thing I would say is don't panic. <laughs> don't, uh, don't view it as a personal flaw, a defect. Uh, don't, don't think that you are somehow uniquely unfocused and that the universe of 27 year olds outside of yourself has this figured out because that's generally not the case. And, uh, I've had that feeling at multiple points and I expect it to come up and I, I, I don't dread it because I've learned to view it as an indicator that something is not working, right? There is something that I need or something that I want or something that I want to give to others or to the world that is, is not being accomplished right now. So I try to view it as, as a simple indicator to zoom out to 30,000 feet and, and try to reassess where things are. In terms of what you do after reassessing, uh, and one way to reassess, by the way, is to get a book like The 80-20 Principle. Uh, and uh, the last name, it's Richard Koch. It may actually be pronounced cock. I have no idea. K-O-C-H. Uh, I never know how to pronounce it. I'm going to go with Koch. Uh, the 80-20 Principle, uh, The 80-20 Way, I think Living the 80-20 Way. There are a number of books that he has written which focus exclusively on the 80-20 Principle. Uh, which uh, I view as very helpful from a diagnostic perspective. If you're just looking at first establishing a baseline, right? Where are you expending energy? Where are you allocating your time? What are the results that are coming from the various categories of activities? And uh, what type of emotional payoff are you getting or not getting from those things? You know, uh, uh, what are the things you want to get rid of? It's another way to, from a sideways angle, get to what you want is to also identify what you what you would like to subtract. What are the things you're doing, the people you're spending time with, uh, the things you're committing to, etc., that you would like to remove that are causing negative stress as opposed to positive adaptive stress in your life. So, so I, would, I would suggest those books uh, or one of them for diagnostic purposes. And then after that, the natural question that comes up is, well, what then what? What do you do? Uh, hopefully, through that assessment process, you'll have some indication of tests that you can run. And I say tests or experiments because it is a very low-pressure labeling to use. You're not at 27 making a decision for the rest of your life, right? And it's important to frame it that way because if you view a decision as a five or 10 year commitment. And there are paths where that is very, that that can be the case, say in medicine, but out, outside of a handful of areas, uh, you can look at in, even in the case of medicine, uh, there are experiments that you could run. So for instance, would it be possible 
if you were considering traveling a, a medical path and thought that might be something you'd want to pursue, that you could sit in at a uh, medical school and audit a class and ask a professor who has a great reputation among students, and that's easy to figure out with online uh, course rankings and so on, uh, who's won specific teaching awards, could you sit in and audit a class because you were considering uh, pursuing medical school and a career in medicine? Is that something that you could use as an experiment for two weeks to sit in on these classes to give you more information and to pay attention to how you emotionally and emotionally respond to that to see if it feels like a fit? Could it be a fit or not? Right? What other experiments could you run? Well, uh, what you could do after you've done that or alongside it is try to figure out if there is a way for you to shadow someone, say, at an emergency room. Right? And this is, this is something I've actually done. Uh, and uh, there's no harm in figuring out how to ask uh, how you might do something like that, even if you are ultimately not granted permission. Right? So even in a case that is particularly seemingly difficult like that, there are experiments you can run. And uh, the, the upshot of this is that you are going to need to try a bunch of stuff. Right. Uh, right. I, I was not planning on ever writing a book, ever. I was not planning on writing the four-hour work week. I uh, had had very difficult experience with writing my senior thesis as an undergrad, and I'd sworn to myself I would never write anything longer than an email ever again. So if you had asked me at age 25 or uh, even 27 probably – if I wanted to write a book, if I wanted to be an author, the answer would have been absolutely not hell no. But <laughs> in, the, in the process, and I did this accidentally, but you can do it by design, in the process of teaching classes uh, related to entrepreneurship and getting a very strong response from students who are undergrads and uh, uh, master's students, from certain aspects of my talks, I began to think uh, it could make sense to, to give a separate guest lecture, this was at Princeton at the time, focusing on something that I struggled to label, but nonetheless ended up calling lifestyle design, as opposed to uh, how to build a fast-growing uh, bootstrapped business and, and how to engineer that to, to function. And it was through that seemingly unrelated practice and uh, brainstorming that the content for the four-hour work week before the title ever existed came about. And then someone else suggested, uh, in effect, just like added a snarky comment to a feedback form at Princeton, which is not rare, which was, I don't understand why you're teaching a class of 40 students. Why don't you just write a book and be done with it? Which I don't think was a serious recommendation. It was just a dickish, <laughs> a dickish response from a dickish kid who's been trained to think that's awesome at Princeton. But uh, nonetheless, that stuck in my head. And I took notes uh, on possible chapter titles, headlines, content, etc., so that I could get to sleep because it gave me insomnia, and then only had conversations with agents and so on after someone 
made introductions without really asking me <laughs> if, if they could make them or not. And then the book was turned down by 27 publishers, right? So it, it's almost like that entire path was something that I turned away from multiple times. And nonetheless, it has turned into one of the greatest gifts I've ever received. Certainly that experience paved the way for everything, including the podcast. Uh, and failures can also offer you tremendous opportunities, right? After the four hour chef, which really completely burned me out. It's a very difficult book to put together on a, on a, on just a suicide deadline. If I had not been burned out by the four hour chef, if I'd still had a lot of gas in the tank, I would have never tested the podcast format as a, a sandbox for intellectual exploration and uh, having the types of conversations I now have on a weekly basis and share with the world never would have happened if I had not run headfirst into a brick wall <laughs> with the four hour chef. Um, so number one, just in, in review, because I want to make sure that, uh, I try to summarize this and then, uh, have a chance to call some other folks. Um, Number one, if you're having these feelings of being unfocused or not sure what to do with the rest of your life, that is normal. And in fact, the majority of the world is having that type of feeling at least a few times a year. Uh, so number one, don't freak out because it's normal. Um, and number two is do an assessment. You really need to understand where you are and what your baseline is before you can make any type of plans or draw up possible experiments for finding the things that you feel you lack. That would be the 80-20 principle, at least as one option uh, that I think is particularly effective. And then the second is coming up with experiments and identifying different ways to stick your toe in the water or different waters to gauge how that feels and whether that provides you with some degree of inner peace or excitement. Uh, and I do think that those are two pretty good litmus tests for a lot of the decisions that you may, might make in life. You know, does it excite you? And are you excited to talk to other people about it? And uh, which, are, which are separate. They don't, you don't have to check both of those boxes. And then you know, how excited are you or uh, peaceful are you when you wake up in the morning and how easily do you go to sleep, right? Like anything that can facilitate sort of those four uh, metrics, I think uh, generally falls into the good decision category in, in my experience. Uh, but A, you don't have to figure it out for the rest of your life. And I, I think it's highly likely that you will at 27, particularly given the rate of technological change and new industries that will be created uh, will in fact have multiple careers throughout your life. And uh, you don't have to figure out which one to stick with because I think that might in fact be a losing strategy for most people. You want to develop skills and relationships that transcend uh, any one narrow uh, area of specialty. Unless you're, you know, some type of like <laughs> nanoparticle uh, physicist <laughs> who's, you know, committed to really specializing, that's fine too. But from the from the sound of of of, of what you're describing, um, I would say experimentation, experiment, experiment, experiment. Does that help at all?
Yes, Tim, that was extremely helpful. And I've, I've been taking notes here as I've learned is the right way to do things. And I, uh, I appreciate your thorough answer. It, it never does disappoint. My, my pleasure. You know, I'm just trying to make, make something up that sounds believable. So I'm glad it, <laughs> if, it, if, it can, if it can aid you in any way. That, that is genuinely, though, how I've, how I've approached things uh, with very rare deviation for the last, say, certainly the last decade, and I would say even a little bit longer. So I'm going to let you get back to your day. Uh, but thanks for lending an ear, and thanks for filling out the form. Hey, thanks a lot, Tim. And when our paths cross next, I'll ask you again about the cocktail. But until then, uh, thanks for the call, and I appreciate everything. You have a good day, all right? All right. You too, man. Bye. Hello? Is this Manil? Am I getting that pronunciation right? You are, and what an honor it is for me. <laughs> well, don't, let's not speak too soon. I might flub the whole thing, but we'll we'll see how it goes. How are you this afternoon? I am doing superb uh, talking to you, so, you know, just busy at work, meetings, you know, the, <laughs> the nine-to-five grind, the antithesis uh, of your first book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there can be a time and a place. There can be a time and a place for it. So how can I... Try to be of assistance. I can't promise good answers, but I'll I will do my best. Awesome. Well, you know, it's tea, not not wine or tequila this time, so uh, mm-hmm. you know they might not be as good. But uh, <laughs> my question for you today was uh, <clears throat> regarding relationships, and you know, uh, basically, you you're very methodical in everything that you do. Uh, just, you know, you kind of plan ahead, and you always like trying to anticipate any downsides and plan for those, yada, yada. Um, so that's kind of my mindset, and I've learned a lot of that from you. I was wondering, like, how can I do that in a relationship where my partner or my girlfriend is, uh, isn't really so prone to that or um, kind of bottles up or, you know, doesn't want to plan due to the anxiety of it? Yeah, I, uh, I, I think we have some... I think we have some fertile ground to explore here. So I might rely on follow-up questions from you to direct mm-hmm. this, but uh, I, I can tell you how I used to think about it and now how I think about it, which is evolving uh, uh, as we speak. Uh, but I realized in the last, say, five to ten years that uh, my ultimate nightmare would be dating a long terror version of myself. Uh, so there, the sort of assumption number one is that I am looking for a compliment, someone who is a compliment. And I, I have a fantastic girlfriend right now. We've been together for a uh, pretty decent stretch of time. And uh, she, she's proven to be a fantastic compliment. I can explain what that means in a second to me as it stands right now. Uh, I'm not looking for a duplicate. And at the same time, I'm looking for someone with shared values, right? How do they view truth? How do they define success, if they define success at all, right? So the the shared Mm -hmm. value could be, and I think it is on many levels, uh, how you define certain terms that people tend to strive for or strive to avoid and how you answer certain key life questions outside of that 
there's a lot of room for flexibility. And what I have found is, for me at least, uh, what is helpful when you perceive, say, I'm I could get myself in trouble here. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, when you, That's okay. I'm yeah. hoping that uh, my yeah. girlfriend doesn't hear this. Yeah, podcast, yeah. So. <laughs> so, so we're both out on that. Yeah, yeah, we're both. I can't blame it on the booze. Um, so, uh, and, and this applies to the last, uh, probably the last four or five relationships I've had, which have all been with incredible women. Uh, and, um, brilliantly strong women in different ways that I separate in my mind what is uh, emotional fragility or lack of resilience from sensitivity. And I think this is a really important distinction, which I didn't, by the way, draw for myself for many decades, and I think it did a lot of damage. In other words, sensitivity to me is reflective uh, uh, of, to use one uh, metaphor, a precision instrument, right? So if you have a scale that gives you Mm -hmm. your weight, but it's in 10 pound increments, that is less sensitive than a scale that gives you uh, pound by pound increments. And a very sensitive scale would give you down to the gram and so on. Uh, Mm -hmm. The question then is how someone wields that sensitivity and uh, whether it is a help or a liability or when it or asking the question when is that sensitivity a help or a liability so you find i think that historically for me i have viewed any type of feeling of feelings to be unhelpful to be a primitive clouding of <laughs> logical analysis and uh, for a long time therefore my response to emotional responses in myself was to stuff them down cut them off mute them turn down the volume and as a result I made some really bad decisions Uh, there were times when it was helpful yeah Oh, no, I was just going to say, I know you said you basically have started relying more on uh, your gut instincts rather than pro-con lists. Yeah, and you use both, right? So I think that it's a, it's a mistake to exclusively rely on either. But the uh, there's a lot to be said for the uh, hundreds and thousands and millions of years of evolution that have given us rapid processing ability that doesn't have to run through a four quadrant grid (laughs) in the analytical mind. There's a lot to be said for it, right? If a deal looks great, but you get the heebie-jeebies from the person you're doing the deal with, I pay a lot of attention to that. The reason I bring it up is that I think it is equally easy to say date a, in this case, we're both dating women, date a woman or a partner who is very, very sensitive and to mistake that for weakness, right? So one thing that I try to do is to get a very clear understanding of how sensitive their instrument is. For instance, mm-hmm. uh, one of my ex-girlfriends, I only realized after we'd been together for several years that when she walked down the street, she was so empathically receptive that she could feel 
basically feel the pain and emotions almost like a contagion of people as she passed them walking down the sidewalk. Like walking down the sidewalk in New York City was incredibly emotionally depleting for her. And I did not, I I didn't realize she was that sensitive. I didn't, and and that's not a, uh, it's not a value judgment. It is an assessment of like her instrumentation. And that changed how I related to what I'd previously perceived as like very unreasonable and maybe immature responses to things. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of point one. And uh, I find it also very, I find it uh, more productive these days. And I should say right off the bat, which I didn't, that uh, many people have suggested like, or asked me, when are you going to write the four-hour relationship? And aside from a terrible-sounding title, the fact of the matter is, uh, I, I don't think I have, right now, a whole lot to contribute to that conversation. There are a million and one books out there about relationships. Some of them are very good. Uh, I think The Five Love Languages is actually an excellent book and has been recommended to me by by some of the most impressive humans on the planet, uh, off the record. Black love language? <laughs> what was it? <laughs> <laughs> that might be a separate one. Um, <laughs> the five love languages. Oh, five. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> like, no, no, no. I mean, I, maybe somebody should write that one too. Uh, the five love languages, I do think for particularly for very Spock admiring left brainers. And uh, I, I know that the left and right brain functions are not as cleanly delineated as this, but just for the sake of simplicity, that book is, is very helpful. And okay. uh, where I was going to go next, though, is that uh, for, for quite a long time, my response to perceived weakness was frustration, and it still is sometimes. Uh, the frustration was based on my perception of whatever their reaction was. And I had not, I had no visibility into their internal process. This goes by the way for employees, it goes for everybody, not just significant others. And what, uh, what I've certainly come to practice a lot more is before getting frustrated, asking what they're experiencing asking them to describe how they're feeling, recognizing that their response exists, whether you want it to or not. So you might as well have a bit more resolution on what they're actually experiencing. And it can end up being very, very reasonable. Uh, And not only that, but even if it is from your perspective, unreasonable, uh, simply recognizing that their experience is valid and, even saying, I can see how A, B, and C would be very difficult. I, I totally hear you. I, I could see that. And you know, I have friends who have experienced similar things, or I've experienced similar things, often diffuses the situation without you having to offer a solution at all, or to sort of critique the response. Um, so that's another sort of consideration. Um, there is a this is the type of thing that's probably going to get me in trouble, but here it goes. So uh, the the 20% of you out there who just uh, love to kind of sport outrage on the internet, you can use this one. Uh, 
there is a there there's a book that I highly highly recommend for everyone to read, and I've recommended it before for many many different situations, uh, or to as education and a toolkit for many, many types of challenges that can crop up. There's a book called Don't Shoot the Dog, which is written by, I believe it's Karen Pryor. And it's at its, at its most basic, a book about uh, positive reinforcement. And it happens to teach a lot of the lessons through discussion of... Uh, sort of animal conditioning, right? Marine animals, mm. dolphins, and so on. Also looking at every possible creature imaginable. And I think the back copy of the back cover of this book says something like, whether you want the cat to get off of your kitchen table or like your mother-in-law to stop nagging you, <laughs> this book will give you the tools you need. Something like that. <laughs> and and uh, the title, I think, does not do justice to the book. Uh, but it's, it's very useful, particularly when you... How long have you been dating your girlfriend? Uh, it'll be like two and a half years, getting up, very close to three. Okay, so two and a half, three years in, both of you probably have... I think this is true for most couples. By this point, certain triggers <laughs> for each other. You have certain, ha I'm sure you have habits that annoy the shit out of her. Maybe she bites her lip, maybe she doesn't. I'm sure she has a few that drive you nuts. And there are probably also exchanges wherein you end up in a self perpetuating cycle of some type. Right, like, and I'm not saying this is true for your relationship, but for instance, right, like, you perceive her as being clingy or needy in some way, so you push away or shut down, which makes her even more fearful that you're withdrawing. So she doubles down on the clinginess and the neediness, then you double down on the pushing away, and it just, <laughs> it, right, 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 that type of dynamic ex it might exist. So in those types of dynamics, it's very useful to have as a reference point a book like this that covers principles of positive reinforcement, right? Because the negative reinforcement uh, can work, but there are a lot of side effects. Does that make sense? So it's like, for instance, yes, yes, yes. And, and this book gives a lot of examples. Uh, negative reinforcement can work. Yeah. It's like, if you want to use a shock collar with a dog, uh, and I'm, by the way, just for everybody out there who's just like waiting to throw pitchforks at my head, <laughs> not not comparing women to dogs. I'm comparing humans <laughs> to animals because we are animals, right? So just chill the fuck out. Right. Uh, and and I think a lot of our problems day to day, quite frankly, is thinking that we are uniquely special. Uh, like f <laughs> animals when uh, for most intents and purposes that's just not the case at all like there's there's plenty right. of great literature and uh, science that we can review to get a better understanding of why we do some silly things and uh, engage in self-defeating behavior and thought patterns, which from an evolutionary standpoint, make a lot of sense. So this is part of that, that education for me, at least. And the benefit of it is 
one of the benefits is that you're not reading about evolutionary biology in a purely theoretical or abstract way. I mean, there's some great books by Dawkins and others that can inform this conversation. What's nice about something like uh, Don't Shoot the Dog is that it gives you tools you can immediately practice in real life. Uh, so that's that's one I would suggest that will give you an alternative palette of options, mixing a lot of metaphors, palette of colors, i.e. options, <laughs> that you can paint with when you're you're in these situations. Uh, and uh, could, give me another, ex- can you give me a, a specific example of, of a situation sure. or a response, something that you wish were different, whether it's ongoing, yeah. uh, preferably something that repeats, right? Something that you see repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, the big one, uh, obviously, always a big thing in relationships is uh, financials. Um, there is like a, uh, she's going to kill me if she hears this, but uh, there is a little that's bit okay, of... That's uh, Rob, okay, um, Robert, Robert. That's okay, Robert. <laughs> Continue. What is that? I said, that's, it's okay, Robert. Don't worry about it. Continue. Oh, yes, 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 exactly. Um, it's just like, you know, we have a little bit of, uh, you know, an income inequality, right? I, I, I do make a little bit more than her, which is, I'm sure, you know, there's always income disparity, but, uh, I, I've always been very frugal my whole life, like in terms of, you know, say always save a ton, don't live beyond your means or whatever. Uh, and anytime I try and talk financials, it just, I get shot down. There's no, uh, there's no discussion to be had. It's just, well, you have yours and I have mine. Let's just figure it out. Mm-hmm. And, for somebody I want to, you know, spend the rest of, some, rest of my life with, it's uh, it becomes difficult, especially when I've been raised um, so financially conscious mm-hmm. as I am. Okay, this is a good example, uh, and because it's it's a it represents a really common source of friction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Really, really common. I mean, this is this is this is not a rare conversation and it's not a rare conversation where one or more parties shut down. So I, I can only speak to tools that have been helpful to me. I, I, I'll, I'll speak to a tool that's been helpful to me and also a buffer. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So the tool, which can become a bit rote and repetitive if you overuse it, is uh, nonviolent communication. And uh, there are many books on the subject uh, there is a particular audiobook version that Neil Strauss, eight or nine time New York Times bestselling author, recommended mm-hmm. to me. I believe the first name is Marshall, the author. The audiobook has, I think, a peace sign on the cover, and it's several hours long. In any case, nonviolent communication, you could certainly read the Wikipedia entry for the basics, but in effect, it is a. It is an approach to communication that uh, aims, and I'm, I'm probably going to piss off a bunch of uh, nonviolent communication black belts out there who are going to say that I got it all wrong, but for, for the purposes of our conversation right now, to minimize the likelihood of provoking a strong emotional response in the person you're speaking with and in yourself. And the I'm going to try to to sort of recall this template right now, there are different ways to approach it, but the the way it will generally start is along the lines of, you know, when A, B, and C happened, or when you did A, B, and C. And the, the, this first part is 
has to be objective. It cannot be debatable, right? So it could be something like when we agreed, uh, you know, when we agreed to meet at three o'clock and you turned up at three twenty. It's what a, it's what a video camera would have recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me feel X uh, because I have a need for Y, right? It makes me feel sad because I have a need to feel that we're in this together and that we're, we're going to always strive to keep commitments to each other. Uh, and then there's a specific ask, which is like, would you be willing to, and the, the, would you be willing to could be anything could be, would you be willing to set aside a time to have a conversation about this anytime that's convenient for you? It's really important to me because for instance, in your case, like I, 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 I literally want to spend the rest of my life with you. And I, this is important to me because I was raised a, B and C. Like, would you be willing for us to set aside some time whenever it's convenient for you, put it in the calendar so we can actually talk about this? Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a template, the goal being what I described previously, right? So, so I would look into nonviolent communication for these types of conversations that have historically produced the same response, whether in your partner or in yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And then the buffer that I was mentioning is, and this took me, it's so obvious, and yet it took me, you know, I'm 41, 42, I can't even remember how old I am right now, but whatever my age is right now, <laughs> I should have figured this out earlier, and that is, it's not just the message, it's the messenger. And what I mean by that is, when, when you get into a pattern, this is in my experience, where a partner says, a, the other partner shuts down or responds with B, and it's just Groundhog Day. That mm-hmm. what's, what may be needed, and it's not, they're not mutually exclusive, what might be required of both, is not the perfect wordsmithing that is going to be like your Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, like shooting through, down the line <laughs> in the Death Star. Like it's not the perfect prose paragraph that's going to just bestow this miraculous epiphany upon your girlfriend who's going to be like, oh my God, now I see it, right? Rather than <laughs> hoping to like craft the perfect Gettysburg address that's going to like revolutionize how she thinks about finances, maybe uh, she just needs to hear exactly what you're saying through someone who is less threatening or right. with whom she hasn't established that pattern, right? And there, I'm sure that Again, I'm not a relationship counselor, but in my experience, when I'm like, I can't believe she does X, I I usually have a very active role in provoking that somehow, right? So it's 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 likely that the the credit slash blame is shared by both parties. Uh, But in the last uh, year or so, I have been, and I'm like embarrassed to admit this. I don't know what that's about. We could unpack that another time. But uh, found a relationship coach to meet with or speak with on a regular basis. And she will speak to me individually. She'll speak to my girlfriend individually. And then we'll have group calls. Uh, Has enabled my girlfriend to say things or convey things to me through someone else who can also act as a reality check for her mm-hmm. uh, and for me when I uh, have a concern or a criticism, she's more than willing to tell me that she thinks it's unreasonable 
or that I'm overreacting. And as she's put it, she's, she's not for either one of us. She's for the relationship and having, Mm. having someone who is a regular part of your fostering of the relationship as a couple, even when there is not a problem, right. Who is consistently there to ensure that like the plants are watered before they start dying has been incredibly, incredibly helpful and can defuse a lot of this stuff through a myriad of, uh, of different factors. Uh, one of which being you can say to this say relationship coach or whoever you might choose to work with therapist that you'd really like to bring this up in a safe space where the three of you can talk about it and where she can voice her concerns to you, maybe separately, maybe together. And having someone to facilitate that is, uh, at least in my experience over the last year, extremely, extremely helpful. It is also helpful if you or anyone like me can get a bit overwhelmed or feel overwhelmed when a partner comes to me with emotional challenges. Right? And, and I mean, at some point, you'll have to develop the ability. I'm not saying you don't. I will have to develop the ability, and I am, to kind of better just sit and witness the experience of an emotional challenge without having to like immediately jump in and offer solutions within 30 seconds. Be like, okay, right, problem, got it. Let's be solution focused. Which left brain go? Yeah, which surprise, <laughs> surprise does go. not always make things better. Uh, I'm, I'm getting better at that. And it's, it's, it, it's a process of practicing and training and so on for me, because it doesn't come very naturally. Uh, to have someone else that your partner can vent to, who is not you, mm-hmm. is really worth the money and time in and of itself. And who you can vent to, by the way, so that you don't blow up over dinner or God knows what at your part. And then say to yourself for the next two weeks, for fuck's sake, why did I do that? What a like 12 car pile up of emotional trauma. I have to now try to clean up. So that's the buffer that, that I might, I might suggest. And it's relatively new to me to have that because I I like to think that I don't need things like that and have realized that that's, uh, at least from my experience so far, very penny wise and pound foolish, particularly if it sounds like you're very committed to being with your girlfriend and want to be with her for a very, very, very long time. Uh, so those are, those are a few of my thoughts. Uh, I don't know how helpful those are, but they've been, they've, they've been helpful certainly to me thus far. Awesome. No, I really appreciate that. Uh, my takeaways from all of that, uh, obviously, the three books, um, Three Love Languages, Nonviolent Communication, and... Um, the well, five, five, the five, one. five Love Languages. Oh, then, Don't Shoot the Dog. That was yeah, the third one. Nonviolent Communication and Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, that, and then The Messenger, that was kind of another one. I was like, ah, oh, yeah, it's not always about the message. You know, replaying it in my head. Uh, thank you again. I just wanted to, you know say thank you uh, for everything that you do and for the call today. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day and uh, hopefully this makes it to the podcast. If not, is it possible to send a recording of it to me? 
It's planned for the podcast. So it, I, I'm okay. sure I'm sure this will end up on the podcast. So don't worry. It'll be just uh, you, Robert, me, and our, yep. our you know a couple couple <laughs> couple million best friends. <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> All right. Good luck. And, Thank you. Uh, Thank you again, Tim. You're welcome. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Hey, guys. This is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get a short email from me? And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by wordpress.com. I love WordPress. I have used it for so many years. It's my go-to platform for blogging and creating websites. I use wordpress.com for everything, every day. My site, tim.blog, is built on it. The websites for my books, including Tools of Titans, Tribe of Mentors, it's all on WordPress.com. And the founder, Matt Mullenweg, one of my close friends, has appeared on this show many times. Just search Matt Mullenweg Tequila Ferris for quite an exciting time. Whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, you can make a really big impact right out of the box when you build on WordPress.com. And you'll be in good company. It's used by The New Yorker, Jay-Z, Beyonce, 538, TechCrunch, TED, CNN, and Time, just to name a handful. And one of my friends at Google, who shall remain nameless, has told me that WordPress.com offers the, quote, best out-of-the-box SEO imaginable, end quote. And it's one of the many reasons that nearly 30% of the internet is run on WordPress. You do not need experience or to hire someone. That's perhaps the best part. WordPress.com guides you through the entire experience. They have hundreds of designs and templates that you can use. And it's easy to get started. There's no need to worry about security, upgrades, hosting, any of that. They offer 24-7 support, and they're very, very responsive. If you have questions, they get right back to you. And this allows you to create the highest quality with the least amount of headache and friction. So if you're building a website, period, when my friends come to me and ask what I use, what I recommend they use, the answer is WordPress.com. So check it out. If you want to get started today, learn more with a 15% discount off any new plan. Go to WordPress.com forward slash Tim to create your website and find the plan that's right for you. So learn more. Take a look. WordPress.com forward slash Tim for 15% off a brand new website. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by Peloton, which I've been using probably for about a year now. Peloton is a cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right into your home. You can also do on-demand, which is what I do. We'll come back to that. So you don't have to worry about fitting classes into a busy schedule or making it to a studio or gym with a hectic or unpredictable commute. 
I, for instance, have a Peloton bike right in my master bedroom at home, and it's one of the first things I do many mornings. I wake up, I meditate for a bit, then I knock out a short 20-minute ride in my undies, hard to do that at the gym, take a shower, and I'm in higher gear for the rest of the day. It's really convenient and has become something that I look forward to. So you have a lot of options. For one, if you like, you can ride live with thousands of other riders across the country on an interactive leaderboard to keep you motivated. There are also up to 14 new classes added every day with more than 8,000 classes on demand. And you can pick based on length, 45 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, music, hip hop, rock and roll, or say low impact versus high intensity or interval. You can pick the class structure and style that works for you. And in my case, I quite like Matt Wilpers and I tend to do on demand and listen to a lot of and watch many of the same classes over and over. But I'm kind of promiscuous and also enjoy classes from a lot of the other instructors. They have Peloton, an amazing roster of incredible instructors in New York City with a whole range of styles and personalities so you can find what you're in the mood for. You also get real-time metrics that you can use to track your performance over time and that will help, I would say, catalyze you to beat your personal best. Now that all sounds good, right? Gamification, yada, yada, yada. I didn't think that it would work for me or in any way incentivize me, but they really 100% hit the nail on the head. I was very, very impressed with how motivating it was and it worked tremendously to keep me pushing uh, which quite honestly takes a fair amount I can get quite lazy particularly with anything that edges on endurance which is kind of more than five reps of anything for me so check it out discover this cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings the studio experience right to your home Peloton is offering listeners of this podcast a limited time offer go to onepeloton.com that's O-N-E Peloton P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com and enter the code TIM all caps at checkout and get $100 off of accessories with your Peloton bike purchase so get a great workout at home anytime you want check it out go to onepeloton.com and use the code TIM to get started <laughs> 